Phoenix Suns were able to take game one in the Valley on Monday night, but Luka Doncic scored 45, and you don't want to let that happen too many times. So how can the Suns slow him down? How can they avoid another crazy fourth quarter? And more keys to game two coming up on today's Locked on Suns. You are Locked on Suns, your daily Phoenix Suns podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. This is Locked On Phoenix Suns. We are part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brendan Clean, a writer at Suns.com and Dime Magazine, and a credentialed media member covering the Suns for the past five seasons. Thank you for making Locked On Suns your first listen today and every day. We are on YouTube, we are on every podcast platform, and we are free. So hit that subscribe button, hit that follow button, and do not miss a day. A lot to get to as we get through round two here. Game two on Wednesday night, and today's going to be the preview, but I'm going to do it in a specific way, and I'm going to get to some things I didn't get to on the recap, and I'm going to look forward a little bit as well. This day by day, this this series, there's only one game, one day between games, I think up until game seven, so if there were a game seven, there would be two days between six and seven, but until then, we're going every other day, so it's going to come fast and uh, we're going to have to keep up. Start with Luka Doncic. We'll get into the fourth quarter. What's real, what's not real from that fourth quarter. And then some inherent advantages. Coaching, roster, etc. that the Suns have that I think already became clear in game one. That I think will continue to be. That the Suns can put the gas pedal down on. But it all starts with Luka. I mean, everything for Dallas starts with Luka. And everything for the Suns game plan has to start with Luka. So again... Game one, stat line for those of you who uh, need it again, although I'm sure some of you don't want to think about it. 45, 12, and 8 on 50% shooting from the field. He took three times more field goals. No, that's not true. Jalen Brunson took 16, but he took double as many as Brunson, basically three times as many as the next highest guy. Everything is revolving around Luka. But let's dig a little deeper. So first, the matchup stuff. Because, I, again, the Suns won pretty handily in Game 1. I would say very handily in Game 1, even though Luka scored 45. But you don't want to leave it up to chance in that way. Because I think he actually is a guy who can go for 50 or 60. And if some of his teammates make shots and he's still even just getting 45, things change quickly. So, matchups. Big conversation topic heading into Game 1. Was it going to be Mikhail Bridges? Was it going to be... Jay Crowder, I got it wrong. It was Mikhail Bridges for 38 possessions on Monday night in Game 1. But it was also the best 38 possessions, so Monty was proven right doing that. Luka only took five shots in those 38 possessions, which is the most important number there. He, Mikhail did not foul Luka at all. This is all NBA.com stats. And Luka scored 10 points, so he made most of the shots of those five, but he only took five and he was not fouled, which means he did not get to the free throw line. When Luka was guarded against DeAndre Ayton, which actually happened fairly often because the Suns were switching so much when the Mavs ran a pick and roll with their center, Luka took 
seven shots, but he was only three of seven from the field in 13 possessions. So he, he shot a lot when he was switched on to DA. He was only fouled once, which is a big testament to Aiton holding up, contesting without fouling, and he scored only nine points. So nine points on seven shots, that's not great. Nine points in 13 possessions is, is ugly, actually, if you're looking at offensive rating, which is points per possession, not great. And then last but not least, the good one, from the Mavs' perspective, from Luka's perspective, the one that worked the worst for the Suns was the Cam Johnson matchup. And I'll dig a little bit into that in a second, why this happened, but it was the worst by far for the Suns. Luka was 5 of 8 on-field goal attempts, he got fouled twice, and he scored 13 points when he was guarded by Cam Johnson, which I believe was... I think it was 10 possessions, so that would be 130 points per 100 possessions. The, I mean, that would be a, a killer offensive rating. So if you were to imagine more Cam Johnson def defense, Luka feasting on that, it's a bad recipe for the Sun. So that's one lesson. By the matchups, Crowder didn't actually get that much time. Booker didn't end up getting that much time. I don't feel like those guys are a big worry. Chris Paul held up pretty well on my second watch, and it's really Cam Johnson you need to worry about. So a couple other observations in terms of what did happen, and then I want to get to quick couple of bullet points for a game plan for game two tonight. So a few other things, just what exactly was going on with Luka. So first of all, something to think about, he, he played 44 minutes and 23 seconds. I believe he played the whole second half. He was out for a bit of time in that second quarter, and that was it. So he's going to continue to get tired. This is also a guy, this was only his fourth game back from a calf strain that he came back early from. So just something to monitor. And he still doesn't look, he's very exploitable on defense to say the least, which we'll get to in a second. More specific in terms of how he was getting his offense. So we talked about the matchups, but it's very different depending on who was on the floor defensively on the Suns and offensively on Luka's team. So he was able to get downhill pretty well, all things considered, when Dwight Powell was on the floor. That was actually something that I didn't notice in real time. Powell's box score stat line was ugly, but he's the best screener on this Mavs team, or at least in this rotation. Maybe Boban's a better screener, but whatever, not playing. And Luka was able to sort of get downhill, but the problem is he had Powell had to keep his positioning to screen McHale for so long that he wasn't able to get downhill and get those lob opportunities, those pick and roll finish opportunities, because he was standing so strong and sturdy for so long to make sure McHale got screened out of the play that you would see Dwight like, you know, five feet behind Luca trailing behind him. That's not a good pick and roll. That just becomes an isolation for Luca, and it's ended up being a, a pretty low percentage shot. The other thing, drilling down a little bit more on Cam Johnson, how Luca was getting the buckets that he got when it was Cam Johnson, I just think it was the worst of both worlds a little bit. Similar to what I was talking about with Torrey Craig against Brandon Ingram, where Torrey wasn't quite strong enough to get Brandon Ingram off of his spots in the first round, but he also wasn't quite long enough to contest his shot, whereas Bridges was better at contesting and Crowder was better getting him off the spots. Craig was just the worst of both worlds. Cam feels a little bit like that right now with Luka. There were multiple shots, at least two, where Luka just bumped through Cam, just shouldered him out of, out of the way. 
And if that happens, no one's going to be in position to do much. But at the same time, Cam's arms just aren't as long as Mikhail's. And so he was in a bad spot a lot of the time. I think the Suns will want to avoid those matchups, if at all possible. Maybe they do a little bit more work to not switch that quite so much. Maybe they try to re-switch if Cam does get stuck on Luka, things like that. The other thing here in terms of observations about Luka's game is that the 45 points were inflated quite a bit. So he only actually really had 31. We'll get to the fourth quarter in just a second. But before that weird fourth quarter, especially about the seven minute mark or so, Luka only had 31 points. He scored 14 in the last few minutes of the fourth quarter. He was one of the guys able to make a couple threes, get downhill on it. I think he had a dunk in that stretch. Um, But only 31 in 39 minutes feels very different than the 45 in 45 minutes that he ended up with. So just be thinking about that, that if you kind of toss out a little bit of what happened in the fourth quarter, that's also going to affect how you need to measure what Luka did. So, game plan. I'm going to go player by player because I do think it's so dependent on who he's playing with and who he's facing. With Powell, I think you keep what you're doing. Keep going over the screen with Mikhail and dropping DeAndre Ayton into the paint. They're not getting that lob opportunity the way that they want to, and what it's ending up meaning is Luka's just settling for mid-rangers and floaters, and those are something you're going to let him take, even though he does make a lot. With Maxi Kleba, which I think will happen more often, Kleba being... The center is going to be the main lineup for Dallas, if not by game two soon. With that, I think you need to be, you need to switch, and then you need to be ready for that Spain pick and roll that the Suns run a lot, that the Mavs also run a lot, and that also is an action where you want to be switching. You want to have the ball handler, the, the person guarding the ball handler, switches out to the shooter at the top of the key. The person guarding that shooter switches onto Luka and Aiton ideally just stays with his man or maybe it's in some situations actually switches out onto that shooter too. Be ready for that. Be ready to switch everything and don't allow quite so many driving kicks to Kleba if you can manage it. Try to be aware of who's in that help situation and who is needing to cover that ground because if you're helping on Luka's drive and then having to recover back out to Kleba It's not going to put anybody in a great situation. That's part of what Dallas is great at. There may not be an awesome answer for it, but the Suns should at least be ready because Kleba went off in game one. Last but not least, I don't think Luka's getting to the basket enough that you really need to panic and redo all that much of what you're doing. Unless he just gets to the paint at will, which he didn't really do in game one, I think you feel okay. Last but not least, go at him on defense, which the Suns started to do more in the second half. Make him tired. Make him guard. Take advantage of the injury recovery process. I'm not saying hurt him. I'm saying go at him. Make him guard you. That's not not something you can do and your athleticism is sapped. Okay. Some of that point inflation happened in the fourth quarter. So what can we take from that? And how can the Suns at least just prevent the brain farts that were happening in that first fourth quarter of game one going into game two? We'll talk about it in a second. First of all, guys, today's show brought to you by Built Bar. It is summertime. You're going to be doing hiking, beach, Travel, Uh, what else? What do people do? Bike rides in the summer. You're going to be taking advantage of the outdoors. And what do you need? You need snacks. You need healthy snacks, and that's where Bilt Bar can come in. They're healthy and delicious, so no more sacrificing delicious food for your health. With Bilt Bar, you can have both. It's easy. It's delicious. And all you have to do is go to Bilt.com and place your order. 
All Built Bars and Built Bar Puffs, which are the real secret, the real treat, they're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're all soft, easy to chew, and they're all delicious. Crazy flavors like banana cream pie, cinnamon churro, lemon cheesecake. There's something for everybody. And there's stuff, simple stuff too, the classics, the double chocolate or raspberry, if you will. And there's new flavors coming out all the time. So go to Belt.com, guys. Use the promo code LOCK15 to get 15% off your order. That's promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at Belt.com. Luka Doncic accounted for a little bit. <laughs> Not that I cracked the code of how to guard a potential future Hall of Famer by any means, but I think there was at least some good stuff in there for you guys. But I think the other thing coming out of game one that I didn't touch on a ton in that first recap show because I wanted to be sure that I had the chance to rewatch things and look back at the box score here a little bit more from the players and coaches uh, at practice is the fourth quarter. The Mavs outscored the Suns 35 to 25 in the fourth quarter. They cut the lead to, I believe, as few as four at one point. And that was a lot of the chatter post game. I don't think the Suns were, you know, depressed or felt like they let one slip because obviously they won the game. But championship habits. Worrying about the future. Monty talked about appropriate fear, which is a Popovich term of don't underestimate the job in front of you. Don't underestimate the opponent in front of you. And so I think that's sort of what the fourth quarter, if if you are thinking about it at all, that's probably the frame of reference. It's not a panic. It's not, oh my God, we, we screwed everything up. But it's reasonable to be thinking about. So I split it up into two things. What not to worry about, which I'll start with, and what to worry about, which I'll end with. First, in the not worry about it category, I don't think you need to worry about the Suns missing the shots that they missed. They were only they only shot 25% from the field in game one. Booker himself was 0 of 3. I don't see any reason to assume that that repeats itself. I don't think the Mavs suddenly got better at defense. I don't think that the shot quality that the Suns were getting was all that different. Might, might have been a little worse because I do think they, again, took their foot off of the gas a bit but I don't think it was anything too terrible. Secondly, what I'm not worried about if I'm the Suns is the way that Dinwiddie and Brunson specifically were able to get going a little bit. And I would actually say Dinwiddie more so, but both of them really. They were taking advantage of poor effort defensively, especially defensive transition, and weaker defenders. I mean, that's... That's obvious. The Suns put their bench in at one point. Monty, and Monty ended up taking them back out, but you saw Torrey Craig get out there. You saw Payne and Shamit, I believe, out there. And when the worst defenders are on the floor, obviously the offense is going to look better. So Brunson especially, I think he was benefiting from more open space, which I'm going to get to in just a second. Maybe there's something to be said for that, but Dinwiddie, I just think he... He's just a you know hot and cold guy. All his really role is in, on this team is to make take threes and attack closeouts every so often. Maybe run a second side pick and roll after the ball's been reversed back to him. He's not a threat in my opinion. He could make shots. You need to close out to him. You need to have a hand in his face on threes because he can make shots. But the way he was scoring in that second half or in that fourth quarter 
doesn't worry me. I don't think that's something where now he's going to have momentum and he's going to carry it into game two. No, I don't think that's happening. Things I will worry about if I'm the Suns. Pace. So this was another big focus in the season series preview that I did is a lot of what was getting talked about by everybody heading into this series. The Mavs pace so, so slow. They were 30th in pace by a mile. The Suns were top 10 in pace this season. That clash was always going to be a big part of what decided this series. In that fourth quarter, the, Sun, the Mavs pace was averaged out to be 96 possessions per 48 minutes. So basically per game, if you think about it that way, extrapolated out, 96. In the third quarter, their pace was an average of 86 possessions per game. So you have to remember the Suns were missing a bunch of shots, so that helps you run if you're the opponent. But even then, even then, that's pretty stark. 10 possessions per game on average more that the Mavs were able to push the pace in the fourth quarter compared to the third quarter. That's noteworthy. If they keep doing that, I think they will have more success and be able to control the game a little bit more. They didn't control game one at all. Second, only one minute and 48 seconds of that fourth quarter for the Mavs had a real center. The rest of the time, it was Finney Smith. So that's probably maybe the single most concerning thing from all of game one if you're the Suns. Yes, Luka did his thing. That's normal. That happens. That has to happen for the Dallas Mavericks to win. The small ball success, I think, is interesting because it might make Kidd realize sooner than he would have otherwise, or maybe not realize, I'm sure he knows it, but get the urge or the pressure to go small sooner because it worked in game one. Yes, it was garbage time, but it's like, well, wow, I can't ignore that if I'm Jason Kidd. So that's interesting. It may mean that we see Kidd go to small ball faster and more aggressively, whether it's more Kleba at the five, which I think will happen, or even more Dorian Finney-Smith at the five. I think that's bad news for the Suns because that's the best version of the Mavericks. That's the best way for Dallas to match up with the Suns. And if they get there sooner, that means less of an advantage for the Suns. Yet, I also want to throw in one last thing on that, which is while only two minutes or so of that quarter had the Mavs playing an actual traditional center, which was Kleba, we're counting as a traditional center there, Aiton only played six minutes and 38 seconds in the fourth quarter, and he missed three gimmies. He had a putback that didn't that, that rimmed out. He had a, a, a layup attempt under the basket that he, he went glass on, and it, it, it should have gone perfectly in. It just bounced out. And then he had a hook shot, which was a little tough, but he made a lot of those all season long. He missed all three of those shots. So Aiton barely playing and missing the shots that he did get, that's your number one weapon against small ball, and the Suns didn't really do much. They just didn't react to the fourth quarter all that much. So it's hard to necessarily say a lot of it will transfer, but we did see some of those things that I think the Suns will at least have in mind going forward to be ready for if Dallas decides to pounce on it. But overall, I don't think it's anything to panic about. I don't think the Mavs figured some grand new thing out. I don't feel like the Suns you know, were messing up things that were, were troubling. They just missed, and the Mavs took advantage of it. That's basically what happened. I want to close out with some advantages, just some structural, no-brainer advantages that showed up in Game 1 
from a coaching and rotation and, and roster standpoint, frankly. And then a few things looking forward to game two, just small points to be thinking about. We'll get to all of that in a second. First though, guys, I want to remind everybody as NBA draft season comes into focus to be listening to the Locked On NBA Big Board Show. If you remember all the way back to last draft, for those of you who are listening then, I had Rafael Barlow come on the show and tell me all about the first round. Well, he's actually the host of Locked On NBA Big Board now, and he writes a newsletter. He does video work, not just like film, basketball film, but he, he made a mini documentary. This guy is incredible. He lives overseas. He does the work. He knows his stuff, and he hosts our Locked On NBA Big Board show, which should be already in your feed if you're not already listening. Hit subscribe, hit follow, and educate yourself. Inform yourself about the prospects of tomorrow. All right, guys. What did we learn about just these two teams and the way they match up in game one? And how will that affect game two? That's the bottom line here. What are some structural things that just showed up in game one? I I made this point in the recap. The Suns just dominated in every single category, but why? So I want to get into the why. So first of all, this is sort of coaching and sort of roster, okay? Here's the lineup that Jason Kidd put out at the end of the third quarter as the Suns built a 15-point lead. In that third quarter, the Suns outscored the Mavs by four. They basically made the game, they put the game away for all intents and purposes. Here's the lineup, okay? Spencer Dinwiddie, okay, fine. He's their bench, he's their sixth man. Here's where it gets bad. Josh Green, Frank Nielakina, who barely even played in round one for Dallas, Luka Doncic, fine. Maxi Kleba, fine. Okay. Might sound like, okay, whatever. Not sure why, why uh, Kid is digging so far into the roster, and, but it is a game one, whatever. Okay, but then you look. This, this, this Mavericks lineup had only played four possessions during the regular season and zero so far in the playoffs. What that tells me is the Mavs do not have other options. That's it. I mean, their let's have Luka save us lineup, which was like everybody else needs a breather, but Luka can can keep playing and needs to keep playing, has two complete non-shooters, one guy who is cold as heck in round one in Spencer Dinwiddie, and then Kleba, who was doing pretty well in that game. But that's three guys who are below average right now, or in the case of Green and Nilakina, just like fringe NBA players. And that was a round two second half lineup for Jason Kidd. I don't think it's even on Kidd necessarily. I think it's a symptom of the roster. So with that said, another point in that category is Dorian Finney-Smith played, I believe, like 43 minutes per game in the first round. He's already at 40 in game one. He is going to wear down. I think the version of Dorian Finney-Smith that you saw in the regular season, I don't know if the Suns, you're not going to pick at him. There's a lot of other ways to run your offense rather than going at Dorian Finney-Smith. That's a silly thing to do. But that's a lot to ask of a guy. Kidd was also, though, trying to save Bullock and Brunson is what it felt like. Uh, I think Bullock only played 32 minutes. I think Brunson only played about 30. So that's slow. Bullock was also over 40 per game in round one, and Brunson was the star of the show in round one, scoring 28 a game. So, Finney-Smith was pretty good, but at the same time, you could also say, okay, well, Bullock and Brunson were pretty bad. 
they were definitely below expectations. So maybe Kidd was just searching for answers. Maybe he was just trying other guys. Why play your best guys into the ground if they're not even playing well anyway? Okay, sure. But I think where this is headed is toward a seven-man rotation. And it's not a particularly awesome seven-man rotation, but it's basically all Dallas has. It's going to be the starters plus Dinwiddie and Kleba. I just, I think that eventually, if not in game two, then soon is going to be where this ends up. Davis Bertans, I'll talk about him in just a second, not going to work out. Josh Green did nothing in game one. And Frank Nielakina, I just, he's a fringe NBA player. I, I mean, if he's not on a roster next year, nobody would be surprised. He doesn't have a place in round two of a playoff series. Last but not least, I want to talk about, okay, we know all that. Kid is in a hole a little bit. He doesn't have the guns in the fight. How can the Suns attack that better than they did in game one? Because that was one of the things, if you're going to pick nits with the Suns, I don't think they really went at the weak points of the Mavs like I expected them to do. Monty Williams acknowledged it to a degree when he talked about not going to JaVale McGee enough on seals and mismatches the same way that the Suns did go to Aiton in those matchups. So Monty saw it too. I'm sure there's other things, and here's some of them. Okay, so the Suns really only, I counted twice. I didn't watch the first half in as much detail the second go-round. I basically watched the fourth quarter and then a bunch of Luka possessions from, from game one in my rewatch. But I remember two, I made note of it, two times when Davis Bertans had to really guard. They only made him do it twice in eight minutes. There was once when uh, they got the ball to Mikhail Bridges on a kickout and Bridges attacked the closeout. That was intentional. If you know anything about the Suns, they get to those things in very creative ways. And then I believe they also got a switch on Bertans at one point. But it was, it might have been maybe three or four, but it was not a lot. They allowed him to stay on the floor, and he made a three in his eight minutes, and he didn't really feel like a big negative. The Suns can make him a big negative. They can also make Josh Green a big negative, I think. And that would just be by helping off of him anytime he's on the floor. If he's going to be a floor spacer, quote-unquote, help all the way off of him. Now, I will point out, too, in some of this pick-and-roll trickery that's happening on both sides, because these teams are such well-oiled pick-and-roll teams, the Mavs are doing something smart by having Josh Green be in the corner. A lot of the time when Green was in the game, he was guarded by campaign. Okay, so what does that mean? If you help off of Josh Green, who's in the corner on the weak side... That's called the low man, the guy who helps over in the pick and roll when the big man is recovering. Well, if you're following me here, that means campaign was the low man. What's he going to do, right? What's he going to do to try to help at the basket if Dwight Powell's going up for a lob? That, that's nothing. He's either going to foul or he's going to stand there and get dunked on. So it, Dallas was doing what they could, but I still just think you... You make them get creative like that. Make them make the adjustment and do not pay any attention to Green. If he makes six threes in a game, good riddance to the, to the, to the W. Lastly, guys, Brunson. He was not good in game one, and I still don't know if he can defend. People say he's a good defender, and I think that that's one of those things where it's like he's good for somebody who's 5'10". I don't think Berton, uh, Brunson is a, is a stopper. He's not going to go up against Chris Paul and do what Jose Alvarado did. Brunson is a passable defender at best. He's, a, he's fine. He's not going to do damage on that end. So that's one thing. Um, you know, a Booker post up on Brunson the same way that we saw him do 
at times against McCollum and things like that. That's easy. Um, getting guys to be able to just shoot over the top of Brunson, that's something we saw in the regular season. If he's guarding Crowder, if he's guarding Bridges, those guys can just make threes over his head. So that's another option. And then I would even feel okay if, the, if I'm the Suns testing his offense a little bit. Go under on screens against Jalen Brunson. Sag into the paint. Make, I mean, don't let him get to the mid-range maybe. You know, maybe have the big man not drop all the way deep, deep, deep into the paint. Don't let him get comfortable from 15 feet, but dare him to, to take that pull-up three, you know? Make him take that shot. Make him try to drive past you. Um, get into the, you know, get, get actually to the basket. Um, you know, maybe this isn't the point in the series where you really are getting that risky because I do think he can maybe make some of those shots, but I would not be paying Brunson a ton of respect. I would make him earn it. You did it in round one. You're undersized. You're a unique player. You don't necessarily have, a, you know, a traditional sort of like, you know, layups and drive and kick and whatever. You're, you're a little shifty. You're, you're angular. You're, you're really like a mini Luca in some ways. Prove it. Do do damage against us, and then we'll we'll adjust. But don't go into this game and every game this series pretending as if Brunson is a big threat. You know that's one of the things I I was treating Brunson as a threat, saying that the Suns should put bridges on him when I was previewing the series. We learned in game two or game one. I don't think he's a threat right now. Make him prove to you that he's a threat. I don't think you let him go for thirty and steal a game, but make him you know score fifteen in a in a quarter. And then react. But that would be another thing uh, that I would at least have in the cards if I was the Suns. All right, that's it, guys. Get ready. Hope you're excited for, for game two. I will be at the arena. The, the atmosphere, I mean, it's been incredible. If you guys see me, say hello. If you see each other, I hope you enjoy and have fun. And uh, if you're watching at home, I'll be here right away after. So I'm not going anywhere. The show is not going anywhere. Hit subscribe. Hit follow. Let's go, guys. Let's, uh, let's, let's keep riding this wave. Thanks for making Locked On Suns your first listen here on game day. Now go make Locked On NBA your second listen, which I was actually on today as well to get caught up in everything that happened around the league on Tuesday night.